You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me for what is going to be the last episode of the 2018 calendar year is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well and I trust all our listeners are well and I'm sure on behalf of uh, everyone at Renew Economy and myself uh, uh, as a consultant, we'd like to wish all of our listeners to this podcast the very best for the festive season safe and happy happy season and I hope they're enjoying uh, continuing their interest in electricity. Absolutely, yes. And we should also take this very early opportunity to thank our sponsors for this year, Watt Watchers and Solaray Energy. Um, both of them have been fantastic supporters throughout the whole year and uh, beforehand. And um, we hope they continue on into 2019 and uh, without their support, we couldn't deliver this podcast. And look, we've got quite a good one for the last um, episode, if I don't mind saying so myself, David. And um, I've got to thank you for this, for putting us on to Warren Lasher, who is the, um, I think it's the controller, um, the, 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 the head of market operations at ERCOT, which is the grid and the grid operator in Texas. Now, why did you take us, propose that we go to Texas, David? Well, I'll get on to that in justice. But, I, you know, Giles, I think, you know, you deserve a lot of compliments as well. The podcast, I will be patting ourselves on the back on. But, you know, I've been pleased with the quality of guests we've had overall on the podcast this year. And I hope our listeners have appreciated that we've been able to get some of the uh, people who influence policy more and know more about the system than just about anyone else. And they've been very uh, free and helpful with their discussions and I, I would like to thank each and every one of our speakers uh, this year for the time and effort that they've put into helping to make this what I think is a very informative uh, podcast. Now Warren Lasher uh, from Earthcast, why did we get for, uh, onto him? Well for one thing the Texas uh, grid uh, has 20% wind these days and I was interested despite being having some of the cheapest gas uh, in the United States and therefore pretty ch- some of the cheapest gas in the world outside of, outside of the Middle East and uh, um, I was interested in the thoughtful way in which they'd gone about getting that 20% wind. The multi took a decade uh, of careful planning and uh, collaboration from all the stakeholders and including the political goodwill um, uh, to, to get the transmission done and I thought there were a lot of lessons for Australia and it's also interesting to hear as their renewable penetration goes up uh, how they're continuing to develop their grid to cope with that in the future and uh, as we're about to hear Warren did a fantastic job of being very helpful in explaining the whole thing to us. Absolutely so let's go ahead and um, listen to the interview. So Warren Lesher thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. So look, just to, for the benefit of our, listen, uh, our listeners, you're the systems manager with ERCOT. Explain to our listeners what you do and what ERCOT is. Yeah, so I'll start with ERCOT. ERCOT is the system operator for an interconnection that covers most of the state of Texas. Um, uh, so it's my, a bit like the national electricity market um, in Australia. Well, I'll take your word for that. 
Yeah, and, and my role there is I'm responsible for the system planning organization. So I'm responsible for tackling some of these issues that are going to be affecting the grid over the next five to 10 years. And tell us exactly what you think those issues are and perhaps give our listeners a bit of a background about um, what sort of energy mix you have in Texas and how that has changed over the last couple of years and where you think it might be heading to. Okay. Um, we have a, uh, a very diversified energy mix. We have um, four nuclear units. We have a, a, a fleet of coal units, about maybe 16,000 megawatts roughly of coal units. We have a significant component of our fleet is fueled by natural gas. We have a growing amount of wind energy. We are currently at just over 21,000 megawatts of wind energy on the system. We have a small amount of hydro resources, and we have a growing component of solar resources. We are just over about 1,000 megawatts of solar resources on the grid. So what sort of share then, of variable renewable energy share do you have on the grid? How are you managing that and what are you expecting in the future? Well, if you look at our interconnection queue right now, you'll see that a significant component of the queue is solar and wind resources. Uh, uh, that would be, for the most part, I think many of our future resources are going to come from solar and wind. We also have some natural gas resources that are um, proposed for development on the system. Uh, increasingly, I think we are also going to be seeing smaller devices on the grid, uh, smaller devices closer to customers. We are also seeing interest in battery resources. We have approximately 1,800 megawatts of battery systems that are in the interconnection queue undergoing uh, the reliability studies. Hmm. And Warren, Warren's... Um, uh... I just wondered if you could talk a little bit, uh, it wasn't directly what we I want to talk about, but I thought it's worth mentioning about power prices in Texas. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about what average wholesale prices are and I guess what how they move through the day? Do you see like a um, lower prices when the wind is operating and then uh, some kind of, uh, it's not a duck curve, but a kind of uh, higher prices for the dispatchable generators so they can still earn a return overall? Well, we haven't really seen a significant impact of what you call the duck curve, which is kind of a, uh, uh, a higher prices when uh, kind of the typical renewable generation is not available. Um, for the most part, it's a you know, it's a very complex uh, it's a very complex issue. I'll start kind of with the easier situation. The wholesale power prices generally range between twenty and thirty dollars. We don't see a lot of um, disparity in those prices across the day and across the weeks. Uh, those prices are set primarily by natural gas units that are in the marginal uh, dispatch auction to serve customer demand. For the most part, wind and solar resources are price takers in the market. Now, there are some situations, uh, kind of two situations I'd highlight. One is there are some times when, because of transmission limitations, uh, power prices will diverge on the system. And you'll see prices set by, let's say, wind generation in one section of the grid because there's a a transmission congestion issue between there and some of the 
load centers on the system. We do see that, um, uh, you know, obviously with the amount of wind we have on the system, we see that fairly frequently. Uh, much rarer, though, are the situations where there's so much wind on the system that from a dispatch situation, we can't take all of that across the system. And then when that happens, power prices are set by the wind marginal price, which because of tax credits in the United States typically is below zero dollars. So it would be a negative price. We do occasionally see negative prices across the system because of um, the, the, the prevalence of wind on the system. But that's fairly rare. And, and I want to get back into why you have uh, so little curtailment. And, and it comes back to the main purpose of this talk but mm -hmm. and, and what a good job I think Texas has done on the planning. But just continuing on the wind for one more uh, second, I've got two other questions. I, I think the wind generation in Texas is somewhat unusual in that it tends to coincide uh, with the afternoon peak demand or, or more than in some other areas. And secondly, I've noticed in looking at your uh, recent reports about, um, I guess, uh, reserve margins, that there seems to be a number of projects that are, are getting delayed, both in the thermal gas and, and the wind and solar side. And I just wondered if you might talk a little bit uh, about your understanding of the reasons for those delays. Well, yeah. So, uh, again, very compl complex questions. Uh, 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 I'm, I'm <laughs> having trouble remembering the first one already. Um, uh, the, the first point was an observation about the coincidence of right, wind and okay. demand. Yeah, so that it's a very good point. I would kind of put it that we have... Uh, wind resources that are scattered all over the state of Texas, and Texas is a fairly large landmass. Um, as a result, we are seeing much more diversity of wind resources than we've seen in the past. One thing that we do see is we have a significant amount of wind along the coast and in South Texas. And for the most part, exactly like you say, those resources tend to generate at a much higher rate when customer demand is peaking in the late summer afternoons when it's very hot and there is a lot of air conditioning load in the state. Uh, we actually separate the coastal wind from the other wind when we're trying to calculate the expected amount of wind that we'll see under peak load conditions, peak customer demand conditions. And we actually count in our reports over 50% of the total capacity of wind along the coast because of the prevalence of that resource uh, during um, uh, system peak demand. On the other hand, like I said before, there's a significant amount of diversity across the system. And what we're finding, this is kind of a side benefit of the amount of transmission that we built to bring the wind resources to customers. By spreading the wind all around the state, what we're finding is there are very few times when you see very low wind conditions on the system because we've got wind in so many different places that the wind is typically blowing somewhere. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting and, and I hope that we may see eventually some of that in Australia as well. Uh, I guess this brings us back to the original point of what a good job uh, Texas has done on putting in place the transmission. And I guess the sort of fundamental question uh, one of the keys to success, as I understand it, is the alignment of everybody's interests around that. 
But I guess I find that kind of surprising in a way as to why the Texas legislature uh, was in favour of it, given that I guess there must it's obvious that there's a lot of oil and gas interests in, in Texas and I'm, I'm surprised they ever want to let any competition onto the system or that the legislature and everyone was of a mind to, to, to make that happen. Yeah, it was an interesting coalition that led to the, the legislation that led to the creation of the Competitive Renewable Energy Zone uh, wind transmission uh, project. I wasn't directly involved at the legislature at that time. Uh, what I am told is that it was a coalition of uh, economic development interests, especially in West Texas. Some of the regions where the wind is very um, uh, strong our strongest wind resources were some of the less affluent portions of the state, very rural parts of far west Texas. Uh, so to some extent, there were people that were interested in economic development. There were also people that were interested in uh, uh, furthering the wholesale market with uh, lower power prices. And there were also, you know, obviously there were parties that were interested in getting more renewable energy on the grid. So it was a it was a coalition that came together and uh, uh, passed this legislation that led to the creation of our uh, competitive renewable energy zone project. And and in terms of integrating all the wind, uh, I guess here in Australia, as the proportion of wind and solar goes up on what is a, I guess I would call a thinner and longer grid, um, uh, we do get a lot of concerns about inertia and uh, grid stability. And uh, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about uh, how Texas has managed that and what ERCOT has managed that. And, and if there are any lessons or learnings, would you do things differently if you were starting over again? Do you see any technology out there uh, from a planning perspective, from a planning perspective that might enable things to be done differently in the future, uh, grid forming inverters and, and such like? Yeah, th this is an area where we're putting a, a lot of our attention right now. Many of the initial challenges associated with integrating the amount of wind that we have on the system were solved by some of our market systems. Uh, most notably, we have a uh, whole, wholesale energy market uh, where we redispatch all of the fleet based on marginal price bidding every five minutes. And we also started this whole kind of adventure with some of our renewable generation technologies. We started with a very flexible uh, thermal generating fleet. So the, the issues associated with ramping issues, et cetera, have not been a significant concern uh, over time because of the resources that we have available and because of the fact that we're leveraging all of those resources every five minutes to redispatch the system. Uh, as we move forward, exactly like you say, we are increasingly focusing on stability issues, on inertia issues, on voltage control issues. And we are finding that uh, there probably are, there, there are solutions out there, exactly like you say. Some of those solutions feel like they're a little bit into the future. And so, you know, like grid forming technologies, et cetera. Uh, one of the things that we are um, realizing as well is that 
there are interrelationships in some of these issues that are uh, uh, very interesting, uh, may be very significant for maintaining the reliability of the grid. I'll mention two of those. The first is we maintain, obviously, we're, a, we're an interconnection of our own, so we don't connect with, synchronously connect with systems outside of the state. Uh, so we're an electrical island similar to Australia. Uh, one of the issues that we face is the need to have adequate resources to immediately uh, compensate for the potential loss of some of our larger units. I mentioned before we have four nuclear units on the system. So we have a certain amount of energy reserves, spinning reserves, that we maintain in order to offset the loss of any one of those nuclear units. In fact, by our reliability standards, we have to be able to offset the loss of any two of those nuclear units simultaneously. But what we're realizing is the amount of those reserves that we have to carry on the system is related to the inertia on the system because the inertia on the system is the thing that immediately responds to the frequency decline associated with the loss of generation on the system. So there's a fairly complex relationship between inertia and uh, the amount of these reserves that we have to carry. And the other side of that relationship is to the extent the inertia is low, to the extent that we need more resources to offset the potential loss of these units, the faster responding resources, such as batteries or other technologies that can respond to frequency decline very, very quickly, become increasingly valuable in those situations. And so that's something that we're really looking at. Another, I said I would talk about two relationships. Another relationship is the relationship between system inertia and what I would characterize as the fragility of voltage control, meaning if you have low system inertia conditions on our system, typically that means that you have a, a, a lower amount of thermal resources connected to the grid, committed to um, providing energy. As a result, your sources that are providing voltage control on the system are fewer um, and potentially more spread out, potentially even further away from customer demand. Many of our renewable resources are a significant distance from our large load centers. And what we find under those conditions is that voltage control becomes increasingly difficult or complex. And it's not entirely clear from initial studies looking out into the future with higher levels of renewables. It's not entirely clear if the system inertia concerns will um, uh, be kind of the, the first challenge we face or if the voltage stability will be a, an issue that we'll have to address before that. That's really interesting uh, and it gets to the level of my technical competence fairly quickly and I also want to give some more space to Giles to ask some questions. Um, uh, but I do, I do think batteries uh, have, and maybe they need their own market, have a lot of potential to help with both uh, voltage and frequency issues in 
in, in, in quick time frames. But the question mm -hmm. I wanted to just go on looking to the future a little more, historically I notice, and I guess it must have helped all the wind to get developed, is that there's been this kind of postage stamp uh, transmission tariff in Texas, in ERCOT, as I understand it, that in Australia we have these marginal loss factors where uh, the account is taken of the uh, where the where the generator is and where the load is and and the line losses. I noticed that in ERCOT you're looking at introducing or you're you're investigating that issue and whether it should be introduced. Uh, I'm just wondering how how you're thinking whether the benefits and the costs and whether those um, postage stamp tariffs were, were helpful in getting the system developed in the first place. I, I think it was a consideration, yes, uh, to the uh, development of some of our resources. Many of the wind resources are, like I said, a significant distance away from customer demand. Uh, that the issue of whether to incorporate marginal losses into our dispatch is something that our commission is looking at right now. And, you know, they, they may make a decision in the near term or they may uh, uh, put that decision off. Um, it's a, you know, obviously, again, it's a complex issue. It is um, something that would have an impact on the relative economies of different units based on their location on the grid that has not been the case in the past. I'm just, um, uh, sorry, I, I might just um, hop in um, there. I've got a couple of questions. Warren, I was fascinated by your talk about um, your reference to the uh, wholesale prices of between 20 and $30 a megawatt hour. Um, um, Australia could only wish. Um, but you're also talking about uh, you expect most of the new capacity to be wind and solar. Now, why is that? Is, is that because there is a, um, a state-based mandate? Is that because of the investment tax credits? Or is that simply because it's going to be the cheapest option going forward? Well, I think uh, certainly the technologies are competitive in our market. Um, there are some other issues at hand. Um, we have a very open market right now. Uh, we have, uh, obviously, like you say, there are certain federal tax credits incentives uh, for both wind and solar that are playing a role. Uh, we have significant, very strong wind and solar resources especially out in West Texas, that are putting those technologies in a position where they, at least from indication, from market indications, they are competitive um, against the wholesale market prices that are typically being set by gas and coal resources. I've got a couple of questions then about um, the storage. You talked about, I think it was 1,800 megawatts of capacity that's yep. looking to come online. Yes. Can you tell me what sort of storage that is? And I'm just wondering what their role would be. In Australia, on some smaller grids, um, we've had a situation where battery storage has been able to displace the spinning reserve. Now, mm -hmm. that's much smaller capacity. I'm not too sure whether that's entirely possible for the scale that you would need as backup to the nuclear generators. But um, what's your sort of line of thinking there? Well, we actually have about 82 megawatts of, of storage that's connected to our transmission system today. And that storage is primarily um, uh, being utilized to provide a fast response regulation service. So this is a, a signal. We have a signal we send out to generators and these batteries to help us match 
customer demand and um, resource output within that five minute dispatch period that I was talking about before. We, the 1800 megawatts of battery capacity that's currently in the interconnection queue, my understanding is that a significant amount of that will be utilized to provide energy arbitrage. So uh, buy low, sell high. Um, but some of it may also be utilized to provide ancillary services. Interestingly, we have a proposal to modify some of our current ancillary service definitions, the, the, the services that we procure for ancillary services. And one of the changes in an, an, an uh, protocol revision that's currently being considered would be to create a new category of responsive reserves, a new category of ancillary services that would be reserves, a new category of ancillary services that would be something that a very quick response, um, uh, a very fast response uh, to frequency deviations. In essence, they would be the first responders to a frequency event. Um, and in, in the context of in the context of the other ancillary services that would be procured, we would be able to ensure reliability um, in the unlikely event that we were to lose two of our large generating units at the same time. I'll I, I leave it to Giles, but I just mentioned in, in terms of energy arbitrage rather than buy low and sell, uh, sell high, I always used to think of buying sheep and selling deer. Yes, I understand. <laughs> I understand the lingo. That's interesting what you said about that very fast response market, because I think Australia is probably crying out for something similar, um, particularly after our experience um, with what we call the Tesla big battery in South Australia, which is about 100 megawatts, 129 megawatt hours. And um, it's been very active um, and showing off its awares of what batteries can do. But um, as it's discovered, um, only about a third of its services actually have a market for it. So the rest of it's really just doing for show and just sort of trying to give a, a clue to the rule makers and the regulators about what they could do and, and how they might change the rules. Uh, uh, Warren, what do you think about demand response? I notice another feature of the Texas market is that there is very little uh, behind the meter uh, investment. And I presume that's because the prices are low. But also those low prices don't seem to do very much for energy efficiency and and uh, and or and or if you will, how do you do you think demand response has a role to play in Texas going forward? Well, yes, I do. Uh, I, uh, I should have started off this conversation by saying I'm not very familiar with how your market works. Um, uh, so I don't know the, the how it differs from our market. Uh, our market has a what we would consider to be a very high uh, uh, system-wide offer cap, a maximum wholesale energy price of $9,000 per megawatt hour. We uh, have that too. Okay, well, good. Um, uh, I didn't want to step into that too far without, without, um, <laughs> without you confirming. But uh, what, where the, what, what that does, one of the things that does to our market is that it incentivizes large commercial industrial customers to protect themselves from the risk associated with those high prices. And I think demand response certainly does play a role there. You also spoke about uh, the postage stamp transmission charges. Those postage stamp transmission charges are allocated based on a customer's usage in the four peak settlement periods, 15 minute periods of the summer. The, 
so the peak settlement period in June, July, August, and September. And so we find there are many customers who reduce their usage, not only for high power prices, but also to reduce their transmission charges across the year. So, you know, I think as the market progresses, I think we are going to increasingly see demand response playing a role from a market perspective, not from a, you know, a regulatory program perspective. And it will be interesting to see to what extent that trickles down into the um, market associated with smaller commercial and residential facilities. We probably need to um, wrap it up pretty soon, but I've just got one more question and probably be one and a half questions actually. Where do you expect Tesla, I'm sorry, Tesla, Texas to head to now in California? They've got a mandate for 100% renewables by 2045. I think the same thing in Hawaii. Um, they neither of those states have as much sort of um, you know sort of local generation capacity as um, Texas probably does. Is there any political talk around these sort of or sort of you know reasonably ambitious targets? And and where do you, as the system um, operator, uh, feel comfortable um, these sort of man, um, this this sort of share of renewables going? Well, I'll start with the first part of that question. Um, the development of renewables in Texas has been, for the most part, based on market conditions. Obviously, the state invested in infrastructure, the transmission needed to connect our windiest and sunniest places with customer demand. I would also note, um, you may have heard about the recent oil boom in West Texas or in the Permian Basin. Um, associated with the hydraulic fracturing process. Uh, interestingly, uh, in many ways, we would not have been able to reliably support that petroleum boom without the new transmission lines that were built to connect wind resources to the grid. So that's kind of an argument for infrastructure can be valuable in many ways once it's in place. There you go. Well, uh, uh, Warren, this conversation uh, didn't uh, has turned out to be an absolutely fantastic conversation. I must say, it wasn't the conversation I thought we were going to have, which was about the development uh, or uh, the excellent development that Texas has had of its transmission and and as you have just pointed out, the uh, uh, the uh, byproduct benefits of having a strong transmission network to 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 run uh, a flexible power system. But I, I've enjoyed the conversation so much. I hope maybe we can repeat it in a year or two's time and, and uh, follow, continue to follow the progress of uh, Texas as, as, as it goes. Sure, I would enjoy that. Thank you. And that was Warren Lasher from ERCOT. David, um, yeah, look, as you said before, um, it was a great interview and he was very clear. One thing I found really fascinating, and I do want to add this in because we talked after the, um, the recording finished and I asked a few more questions about the spinning reserve, which he mentioned. And he talked about how much they actually have the spinning reserve they need for no other purpose than to back up the four nuclear power generators that they have. And they, he said that this totals 2,300 megawatts must be spinning reserve at, at at all times, just in case one or two of the generators spin off. And 
I think this is actually an important point because we keep on talking, a lot of people, the naysayers of renewable energy technologies sort of say, oh, look, it needs backup, it needs someone to sort of, you know, what happens when the wind doesn't shine, when it doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. But the fact is, any sort of generation needs spinning reserve or some sort of thing as, as a backup. Certainly, the bigger the unit you've got, the more spinning reserve you need. 2,300 megawatts at all times at $10 a megawatt hour, that's about... Um, that's about $180 million a year um, just in spinning reserve. And um, it was also interesting to note that um, some of that spinning reserve capacity he mentioned actually comes from demand response. So industrial companies that um, will declare a day in advance um, how much capacity they're willing to forego in the case of an outage. So um, all in all, though, a really fascinating interview. Yes, indeed. And, and people uh, who support nuclear energy for uh, one reason and another uh, need to bear in mind that supply that is inflexible and has to run all the time uh, can create just as many issues in a way as demand that is inflexible and has to run all the time. Both, both demand and supply, when it's flexible, uh, will generally result in an uh, easier to manage grid. Indeed, indeed. And look, I'm talking about sort of grid preparation and we heard a lot from what Texas had done to sort of prepare for the future and they sat down and thought about the future and what might be looking like. We're starting to get that bit now in, in, in Australia. We've had the integrated system plan released by AEMO a few months ago. We've had the New South Wales people talking about their transmission plan, which is really just a subset of the ISP. And we had the Australian Energy Regulator released last week. It's updated rules on what's called the regulatory investment test, um, both for transmission and distribution, I think. And we're going to hear a bit more about this, I suppose, from the COAG Energy Minister's meeting this coming Wednesday. So look, gradually, piece by piece, this planning regime is coming into place. The essential point we need to realise is that Australia is going to have an awful lot of distributed electricity. Uh, I saw some reports from investment banks uh, during the week, that is reports, I didn't see the reports themselves, but they were written up pointing out what a difference if we have a million households with batteries. I did some rough calculations in a note and said that that could be five gigawatts of power if each house has five kilowatts of maximum power from a house battery. Now, whether you're building Snowy Hydro or anyone that depends on a duck curve and peak generation, if you've suddenly got five gigawatts at 8pm taken out of the system, it's going to make a big difference to your calculations. But despite all that, we are going to need lots of transmission, in my opinion, and reconfiguration of the current transmission system. And uh, the message that comes from Texas, the message that we're already seeing in Australia, is that this is the message that, that you and I have been banging on about for years, is that this takes a lot of time. It's you can build a solar plant if you're really pushed in a year, a year and a bit, but uh, the transmission, uh, if a new transmission link is required, it may take you know five, six years to get done. Amy uh, Keane pointed out that uh, six years was the measure she used. Two years for the R two years for the RIT test, which is a, an absurd amount of time. Two years to do the planning studies, uh, and then two years of actual construction, and and even that, you know, in Texas it took ten years. Indeed, and um, Amy Ken, I should just point out, is the Renewable Energy Advocate in New South Wales, quite an important player in what's been happening there. Look, um, you mentioned Snowy, and there's been a lot of stuff about pumped hydro in the last week. For a start, we had the Snowy Hydro Board come up and sort of say, look, this uh, financial investment decision is okay by us, um, but we've, we've heard no more details, and now it goes back to um, the Minister, Angus Taylor, to make a decision. There's no indication there either about when that decision would be made. Um, 
presumably he might be as favourable to it as Malcolm Turnbull, given his grandfather was the chief engineer on the original Snowy Hydra. Well, you know, you know, Giles, uh, Angus Taylor's very quick about doing anything that suits his particular agenda, like uh, getting out the big stick and waving it around, uh, which turned out to be a bit of a feather duster so far, or even just a feather. Uh, and then his proposal uh, that he's absolutely rushed through for more dispatchable generation of one sort or another, but he's sitting on a project that everyone's been working hard on and has its merits. Uh, we still haven't seen all the financial details. It's had its good parts and its bad parts. And now he can't even say when he's going to make a decision. So, you know, <laughs> a little bit of consistency would always go be helpful, I do think. No, that's right. Yes. And look, speaking of that, we'll get back to Pumped Hydro in a minute. The um, That dispatchable generation um, tender. Look, there's a few alarm bells which are ringing for me. One, it's it's um, it's it's very rushed. Um, they open for these uh, registrations of interest rather than expressions of interest. And um, people who sort of know about these things tell me that registrations of, of interest um, basically don't have the same level of governance um, requirements. So it's a bit more of an informal poll. What have you got out there? And then they've basically given themselves all the flexibility in the world to choose which particular merit criteria and which particular um, incentives they'll give. So if they do happen to have a pet project out there that they'd like to support, say, for instance, a Vales Point power station, which possibly is Tamago Smelter, a customer, then they can pretty well, um, they've given themselves license to basically design the first stage of the scheme to suit whatever it is that they choose to have done. So um, those registrations of interest get done by, have to be returned by January the 23rd. Then he wants a more formal request for proposal. And then I presume he wants to sort of rush it out and sign a contract in March or April um, ahead of the next election in May. So as you point out, yes, a long time thinking about Snow Hydro and many other things, but uh, not much time spent thinking about this one. Well, I think it's generally regarded, and I have to say this is poor governance to try and do major proposals like this in, in such a hurry. And I think myself that banks and financing organisations uh, uh, will certainly be very reluctant to be rushed as much as that. And uh, contract off-takers will have to think very hard about the prices uh, that are offered and what prices may be like in the future. So there's a lot of water to flow under the bridge in, I, I think it will be difficult to get something really done, but uh, you should never say never, particularly where where there's a will, there can often be a way. And uh, just getting back to the pumped hydro, so I think you were going to go on and say that this, um, after Snowy Hydro, we also had the New South Wales government, uh, which has been progressed its uh, pumped hydro um, uh, uh, project and has, has received strong expressions of interest. Uh, in, in adding some uh, pumped hydro sites, uh, in, in adding some uh, pumped hydro sites to a variety of government-owned uh, dams and the like, particularly in northern New South Wales, so quite separately from both of those, but also in New South Wales, we have uh, Origin Shoalhaven project, which has got arena funding, and in a way it's similar. It's just a brownfields expansion, which mostly tend to be the very cheapest, but it's only only a couple of hundred megawatts. Uh, uh, so there's a, a lot going on there. And again, we need to get that moving along at a good pace because pumped, uh, pumped hydro itself takes time and um, with the environmental approvals. And, and we don't need to do it all at once. We just need probably a couple of hundred megawatts of that every, every year or two to back up all the wind and solar. But in my opinion, the biggest need of all comes to, from getting the uh, more transmission built in New South Wales and Victoria to get more wind and solar able to be connected uh, as, it be as people want to build it. 
And yes, they're not the only people who want to build, in, to, to build more transmission. Tasmanian government came out with a report um, which, um, unsurprisingly, was highly favourable to their own pet project, which is the Battery of the Nation one. This would be the first of what could be several new links across Bass Strait. Um, and it's interesting what they said about this particular um, study, a, a white paper saying an extra link going across Bass Strait would allow them to work their current hydro assets harder but not necessarily provide the incentive to build um, new wind generation down there. So that's an interesting one. The other one we're also waiting to hear from too is the GenX um, pumped hydro project um, up at Kidston in Queensland. And, so there's a lot of these projects out there and a lot of them will have their state governments as their best friend uh, because everyone wants the project to be in their state. Um, but uh, what we're really missing is the kind of uh, either there's no real market incentive in my opinion to this day that would en enable you to actually take that risk on as merchant. So this is where I again I think that's um, a reverse auction scheme or something where you, you put a bid out there for say 500 megawatts of, of dispatchable generation uh, run by the say the federal government and Hydro Tasmania could bid into it, Snowy Hydro could bid into it, uh, Origins Shoalhaven could bid into it, uh, although it may have its own commercial interests and 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 these um, projects could be all assessed on a fairly narrow set of criteria uh, of which price and and um, uh, guarantee of being able to get it done at a certain time would would be high on the list. Well, we may get a bit more um, clarity on that this week because we do have the COAG Energy Minister's meeting on Wednesday. That should give us a bit more insight into whether we are going to get at least the reliability part of the uh, National Energy Guarantee. Chances are possibly low, but you know, let's wait and see what emerges out of that. So, And then that will presumably then sort of um, influence how um, a future government, and we're having a federal election in Maine, and all things are pointing to a change of government, how a future Labor government would then sort of handle its um, own 50% renewable target and, as you say, those reverse auctions um, going into the future. But one more thing I think we just want to quickly talk about, David. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that came out on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, and one of them just sort of appeared in the last moment was the Australian Energy Regulators report into the South Australian blackout. Now, they've been sitting here looking at it for two years <laughs> quite confoundingly they actually sort of say well we haven't actually worked out what the cause of it is yet <laughs> so, we haven't looked at that we've just looked at the circumstances before during and afterwards and look it was interesting that they actually when the blackout happened there's a lot of questions about what was AEMO doing was it paying proper attention to the weather forecast coming through from the Bureau of Meteorology why was the Hayward interconnector being run um, at maximum and in fact just five minutes beforehand um, beyond maximum and why had no additional backup um, or additional generation been put into play in South Australia as a safety first thing. Now the interesting thing about this is that the um, Australian Energy Regulator sort of found that um, AEMO had made some errors but was not to blame for the outage and there was no re need for any further action but it's interesting to note that those things that people wondered about at the time why didn't AEMO do it now obviously they are doing it so they've kind of almost woken up to themselves and sort of said yes well we probably were lacking and our controls and the management um, was deficient and, and now you just don't see that and in fact if anything they've become sort of quite highly conservative um, both in the connection agreements for new plant and the running of um, grids such as in South Australia with a minimum amount of um, thermal capacity running at any one time. But um, the big question comes there, 
they did look at weather zone in information and um, I had a good look at it today actually this report and it was interesting how the Bureau of Meteorology sort of gradually they saw that the thing was worsening they thought about action they were talking to people they didn't issue any formal announcements a, a, a warning had uh, they had assumed that there would be winds up to 120 kilometers an hour they thought they were okay another thing came through saying it could be up to 140 kilometers an hour they didn't really do anything then, and they kind of defended themselves by sort of saying, well, no one actually predicted any tornadoes and supercells. Um, so um, anyway, they've kind of been left off the hook, but it's kind of an interesting thing. It kind of confirms what we thought at the time. And Charles, obviously, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, is what I will say. Uh, <laughs> look, that's probably the best summary of it all, actually. I think I've been wandering way too long at this one. <laughs> The other thing I think, uh, and we should sign off, um, uh, as interesting as electricity is, um, uh, the other thing I just want to point out is it's been a tough week down in Victoria again. We've had uh, two units at the Yalorn Power Station out for significant portions. I haven't seen whether it was all week. And one unit at Luoyang A. Uh, this, of course, uh, tends to push up power prices um, at times, peak demand. Um, I do worry about reliability. When I think about all the new supply coming on, I, I keep having to make a downwards adjustment to its net effect uh, because uh, there seems to be less output coming from the thermal stations, particularly in Victoria. Indeed, we'll, we'll, we'll see and um, sort of fingers crossed for this coming summer because it looks by the weather patterns we've seen so far, it's going to be pretty variable and could be very, very hot and um, all sorts of things could go wrong. But David, look, um, before we go, once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, uh, What Watches and Solarate Energy. I'd like to also thank the listeners. We've had more than 340,000 downloads this year, which is a fantastic result for a little conversation, some interviews about electricity of all things. And um, I'd like to thank your, your participation too, David. It's been um, an absolute pleasure and um, look forward to doing it again in 2019. Well, I, I trust we make more progress. I mean, at the end of the day, the bottom line here is there's been an awful lot of new wind and solar projects started this year and some even finished, not as many as I expected. Um, and so that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is I was listening to a climate scientist uh, talking on a podcast today and she was asked whether she thought something was good or bad. And uh, what she said uh, was, uh, I don't think that way. I think between bad and terrible. And uh, that is the main thing that everyone still needs to focus on. Uh, we had the COP uh, uh, sort of meeting in Poland this week. Uh, I'll just finish on a gloomy note coming up to Christmas. Uh, it really, it didn't make that much progress. And, and I doubt if we're going to make progress until people realise uh, what the actual negative consequences of two degrees are. If you went round to investment banks and did a survey of uh, people and asked them what they thought the global temperature was going to be, and I have no idea what the answer is, but my guess is they would say that uh, it, it'll probably be over two degrees. That's, uh, and so the question uh, is, um, we're not doing enough. That's the point. We know that, but let's get on with it as fast as we can. Absolutely. Okay. Well, look, um, thank you, David. Um, we'll be back at the end of January, looking through to the new year in 2019. And once again... Thank you all. All the best for the season. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time.
Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.